Hey, Simply Put listeners, we're excited to return for another year of the podcast. But before we start today's episode, we want to ask for a quick favor. If you have any topics or guests you think would be great for the podcast, we'd love to hear your ideas. Email simplyput at fhnfinancial.com with any ideas, and we'll be sure to consider them as we plan the year ahead. That's simplyput at fhnfinancial.com. And one last thing to note, this episode's interview was recorded January 4th, so we discussed the possibility of the government shutdown before any developments that happened this week. All right, on to the episode. You're listening to Simply Put, a podcast from FHN Financial. I'm your host, Will Comperl. As the presidential primaries begin and attention shifts to November elections, investors are taking a look at how the political landscape could change at the end of this year. Before then, though, the bond market will be adapting to some new regulations and changes to the tax environment that are already in the pipeline. On today's episode, we talk with Brett Bolton, Vice President and Head of Government and Industry Relations with the Bond Dealers of America, about what the bond market's tax and regulatory landscape look like for 2024 and beyond. Stay tuned. Coming up soon, our interview with Brett Bolton, Vice President and Head of Government and Industry Relations with the Bond Dealers of America. But first, a quick market update. Yields have reversed some of their post-FOMC rally at the long end of the Treasury curve this week, but the decline in bond yields during the last two weeks of 2023 are still largely in place. Markets are currently pricing in a 70% probability the Fed's first rate cut comes in the first quarter and expect just over 125 basis points of rate cuts by the end of this year. We expect yields on 10-year Treasuries are unlikely to get much cheaper this cycle at just over 4%. The December CPI data came in mostly as expected this week, the last inflation report before the Fed's pre-meeting silent period at the end of next week. Core inflation rose 0.3%, not exactly consistent with the Fed's 2% target over 12 months, but still showing a much slower trend than a year ago. Last week, the December employment report surprised slightly to the upside on payrolls growth, while the unemployment rate came in slightly lower than expected at 3.7%. Overall, the report's mixed signals don't suggest an overheating labor market, nor one on the verge of a downturn. On net, the data during the last two weeks has kept hopes for lower rates in 2024 intact. The FOMC minutes from the Fed's December meeting reinforced Chair Powell's communication at the press conference that signaled the Fed was in no rush to start cutting the Fed funds rate. This week, Dallas Fed President Lori Logan said she would favor revisiting the Fed's balance sheet management sometime soon especially as usage in the Fed's reverse repo facility quickly dwindles and risks putting future pressure on bank reserves. The federal government is set for a partial shutdown on January 20th if policymakers can't reach a funding agreement in time. House Speaker Mike Johnson and President Biden spoke this week trying to work out the details of a proposed $1.66 trillion budget discussed by lawmakers over the weekend, but no deal has been reached just yet. If parts of the government were to shut down on January 20th, This would not impact debt payments from the Treasury, though there would be knock-on effects to overall economic growth. We talk a little bit more about this in this episode's interview with Brett Bolton. That's all for the market update this time. Now, our interview with Brett Bolton.
Our guest today is Brett Bolton, Vice President and Head of Government and Industry Relations with the Bond Dealers of America. Brett, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks so much. Our focus today will be on the tax and regulatory environment for the bond market. Brett, before we get into the discussion, can you tell us a little bit about the Bond Dealers of America just to get a better idea of your insights on the industry? Sure, yeah. So the BDA was created post-financial crisis uh, in the late 2000s. My boss and CEO, Mike Nicholas, uh, thought that the industry, especially the fixed in income industry, was a little bit underrepresented here in D.C., so we created the Bond Dealers of America to, to represent purely fixed income broker dealers. Uh, fast forward, what are we, 15, 16 years uh, in, in the future from, from 2008, now we represent nearly 100 member firms uh, from regional and bulge bracket uh, firms uh, in New York to, to smaller broker dealers throughout uh, the United States. So it's an exciting time to be here in DC with tax reform uh, coming back into the fold in 2025. and. Uh, Here's the, the next adventure you know, the BDA takes in the next couple of years to uh, ensure fixed income broker dealers are well represented here in Washington. I'm sure then you've got a, a great perspective um, on kind of making that connection between what is going on in Washington and also what's important to uh, people in the fixed income industry. So I want to start off by looking back at 2023. It was uh, only recently that we we're in that year. Um, were there any big regulatory or tax issues for the bond market uh, last year? And were any of them big surprises or were they mostly expected? Honestly, well, I think most of it was pretty expected. And from the BDA's perspective, most happened within the regulatory framework. Um, for the past eight or nine years, one of our big regulatory issues has been FINRA Rule 4210, which governs margin. It was proposed in 2015, uh, and we fought it pretty successfully until last year, where uh, the SEC approved the amendments, and they're going into effect in May of this year. So a little bit of background on the rule, it's, it states that firms will need to collect and hold variation margin on sales of new issue agency MBS under certain circumstances when the price uh, position drops below designated threshold between the trade and settlement dates. This is problematic for, for size firms we represent, so we pushed pretty hard against the, the original uh, covered agency transaction amendments in 2015 and beyond. They never took effect, as I mentioned, until this year. And the final amendments approved in 2023, FINRA made several key changes that we pushed for, including dropping a, a key requirement in which uh, both firms collect maintenance and variation margins, uh, opting, uh, excuse me, where we uh, push for an option for these firms to take capital charge in lieu of the collective margin. So that was a big win that came to a head this year. And again, we'll go into effect in May of 2022. And another big issue that arose this year was the one-minute trade reporting. Both uh, the MSRB and FINRA have uh, parallel proposals, and we continue to work with both the MSRB and FINRA on these issues. We raise a number of concerns about one-minute trade reporting and fixed, um, fixed income, including uh, so many of these trades are manual, and so many of these trades uh, will be nearly impossible to present within one minute, to be reported, excuse me, within one minute. Um, and it actually just came out earlier this week that the MSRB in the first quarter plans to submit their amendments uh, to the, the proposed rule to the SEC where uh, manual trades will likely have an exemption. So that's something we're looking at that will span from 2023 to 2024 uh, and it's something we, we plan to keep working on. As far as tax developments, 
I know we're going to get into a little bit more uh, that type stuff here momentarily. It was a ho-hum year uh, for tax legislation here in D.C., along with uh, politics in general. So I, lo I look forward to building out that conversation with you over the next couple of minutes. Great. Yeah. So turning to 2024, um, you know, I find there's so much media focus on the political gridlock surrounding uh, a few hot button topics. But usually behind the scenes, believe it or not, there are some less sensational laws that actually get passed. Um, so at a big picture level, are there any big tax and regulatory changes in the pipeline for the bond market this year? Um, I know you just talked about 2023 ones that'll kind of linger into this year. But is there anything in the pipeline that we can expect? And, and how do you see the legislative environment playing out uh, this year when it comes to potential new laws? I think I've lost a good portion of my hairline in 2023 <laughs> just because of politics and how much that slowed everything down. And I mean, you mentioned the, the hot topic issues, and I think those are going to continue to grow in 2024, making tax issues, at least next year, pre-election, pretty challenging. There was no big tax title passed in 2023. And while some folks are flirting with the idea of something passing in 2024, it's going to be limited. And I have pretty strong reservations that it won't impact uh, the markets we care about directly. We're looking at maybe low income housing tax credit, child tax credit, certain small issues like that that will pass. And I guess that the housing could have somewhat of an impact on the market. But beyond that, I think it's going to be a pretty uh, minuscule legislative year uh, for, for the tax markets. We're honestly looking at 2024 as an opportunity to get in front of legislators, setting the stage for 2025, where, as I mentioned earlier, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, all the personal provisions sunset. And that's really going to set up a, a fabulous opportunity to A, discuss the tax exemption, but B, promote other finance tools such as private activity bonds that were threatened in 2017, uh, tax-exempt advance fundings, which were eliminated in 2017 as a pay for just a good opportunity to rehash those provisions as well, promote the bond market, promote the infrastructure investment it promotes at the state and local level. So while that could be a threat, it is a threat to the bond market. We also are viewing it as an opportunity to promote those tools, as mentioned. Regulatory-wise, beyond the one-minute trade reporting, I want to highlight a headline here that I saw yesterday from the bond buyer. Outlook, the MSRB prepares to change the market for dealers in 2024. That's pretty ominous. I mean, I don't know how much more ominous you can get. And that, that followed an, an interview with MSRB chairman uh, Mark Kim. You know, that, that's, that's scary. Uh, it clearly has everybody's attention. But what I think they're looking at generally in 2024 uh, is moving to the T plus one settlement cycle uh, with a compliance state of late May, I believe. It also seems that they're going to dabble in pre-trade reporting. This is a topic that's been on our radar for the past couple of years. I know they continue to collect data on that issue, and they're not really projecting what they're going to do in 24. But uh, let's put it this way. It's, we're watching it. We're working with them, and uh, we're hoping to at least get in front of the issue as they propose more concrete details. Uh, so I want to follow up a bit on the um, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the TCJA. Um, it was passed a few years ago in what seems to be a lifetime ago, certainly a pandemic ago. And I believe a lot of the major provisions are set to uh, expire in 2025 unless they're renewed. And so that is after this upcoming um, November election. But can you give a little bit more detail about... Um, the most important kind of fixed income implications from that law? And do you have a sense of whether 
a lot of them are likely to be renewed next year, or is it really entirely dependent on how the elections shape up? The elections clearly will have some impact, but I think a key point to build on this conversation is it's hard to raise taxes on the middle income. Once they're lowered, historically, it's hard to raise them back. So that pushes me into the camp of there will be some sort of compromise. And if you'll notice, post-COVID, the multi-billion, trillion, excuse me, billion, what a joke, trillion dollar spending spree that Congress has gone on. Both parties have found some religion on needing to pay for big spending projects. And I saw a number that, that frightens me here as fixed income is concerned. TCJA raising it for another 10 years, the, the personal rates that are set to expire will cost $3.6 trillion over a 10-year budget period. You got to find some way to pay for that. Um, so that that's where I get a little bit concerned where the tax exemption, a top 10 federal tax uh, expenditure annually could come into play as a pay for it again while we're trying to get out in front of it. A another big issue I'm looking at that costs a lot of money is the salt cap. I, I don't think any re-up of the TCJA can pass without upping of the $10,000 threshold that, that, that salt state and local tax exemption has right now. And that, that to me, again, brings a, a threat back to the fixed income market. Um, you got to pay for that. And folks are not going to vote for a bill that does not have a salt cap, a raise in the salt cap. So that's what we're looking at. And again, that that's December 31st, 2025, I think is the official drop dead date for the extension. My uh, political view here, the, the White House is up for grabs. I honestly don't want to talk about it and don't know what's going to happen there. But I, I do think the way that it's going to play out. There's so many Senate seats up for Democrats this election. I assume the Senate flips. Hmm. The House, my view now, is going to flip almost every two years. Uh, the, the Republicans, I saw somebody else is announcing their retirement to take a president of university job. They have like a one or two vote margin. You're going to probably, the, the House will probably be Democrats. The Senate will probably be Republicans. Point being, there's going to be some kind of compromise bill. And uh, what that looks like, I don't know, but I can tell you what, it's going to be expensive and they're going to be looking for ways to pay for it. Can you um, dig a little bit more into that connection between um, the SALT um, deductions and fixed income markets? Because I think usually when people um, read about the discussions about TCJA, it's about personal income tax brackets. Um, so I, I believe there are a lot of provisions that pertain to uh, municipal bonds. Um, so what are the fixed income market implications in there? So the TCJA in particular eliminated tax-exempt advance or funding. Um, and while private activity bonds were eliminated in the House, Senate Republicans ended up going to bat for PABs and, and sparing. Beyond that, in 2017, I think the, the big, big blow to the market at the time was the, the drastic cut in the corporate uh, tax rate. That's not up in 2025. So we're looking at a vast majority of, of personal provisions. I mean, I think there's a few like expensing measures, et cetera, et cetera, on the corporate side. But the, the 35 to 21 or whatever the final number was, that's set in stone at uh, 25. So nothing really to look at there. As far as SALT, I, I think just looking at it, I'm looking at it just as an expense, basically. When tax bills such as this are debated, everything is proposed as a number, period. And that's why advanced fundings were eliminated at the last minute. It was $17 billion. Hey, we need 20. Let's go after that and maybe one other thing. So Everything's on equal footing, except, you know, the, the, the few like Medicare, Social Security, et cetera, the, the, the things you cannot touch. Everything else is up for grabs and it's a crapshoot. And, and, that, and that's why expenses such as salt 
which have garnered so much support from Northeastern Republicans, California Republicans, 40 or 50 of them, right? I mean, that's why those are so important in this discussion. So turning to the more immediate future, last year, we narrowly avoided any serious consequences from the debt ceiling. It's suspended until January 1st of 2025. And so we can get on with our lives uh, for a while before it becomes an issue again. But separate from the debt ceiling, the federal government could potentially shut down parts of it as early as this month, um, and then other parts uh, in February. Now, this wouldn't impact debt service payments from the Treasury, like like the debt ceiling uh, debacle, uh, but it would stop certain parts of the federal government from operating at full capacity. Do you see a shutdown impacting fixed income markets? I foresee a shutdown in the next six weeks. Speaker Johnson was elected because Speaker McCarthy made a deal on, on keeping the government open. And then Speaker Johnson proceeded to set up a two-tiered track to keep the government open at the time. So as you mentioned, we have two opportunities for the government shutdown. Once in, I think, January 19th and then once in early February. I, I don't see how he can get beyond January 19th. I read this morning that both parties are now looking at extended funding as is. So another continuing resolution throughout the year 2024 beyond the election. I don't see how the, the right flank of the Republican caucus will sign up for that. So I, I'm struggling to see beyond January 19th at this juncture. Building off that to try to answer your question more directly, how will it impact markets? I just think continued turbulence. I mean, it's been a rough 18 to 24 months with rates and political instability, and I just don't see anything in the near future changing that until the Fed likely lowers rates later this year. So while it, it might not directly impact fixed income markets, I just think the the continued instability, which is most likely going to happen, is not beneficial for anybody involved. Yeah, I think to that point, um, in, in, in kind of recent episodes, uh, so shutdowns, I believe, don't actually save money on net because turning those parts of the government back on actually costs more money. But that systemic dysfunction is what rating agencies have looked to when they downgrade. And, and I, it, it's a totally separate uh, conversation about how much those rating downgrades actually impact U.S. interest rates. But yes, the, the systemic issues and just the headache of it and how it takes attention away from more important things um, has kind of some uh, intangible impacts. Now, when you talk to your members, um, because you, you do have, you know, you are kind of representing the, the industry, you are a voice, an intermediary with legislators, what are they most concerned about for this year? What are their biggest priorities? I think from the regulatory side, it's been an onslaught of new regulation over the past four to six years. Under the current chair at the SEC, I think there's also been a pullback on response time, meaning the comment periods have been much shorter and there's been much more activity. So I think uh, the industry as a whole beyond the BDA is pretty frustrated with that, as well as member members of Congress are frustrated with the SEC and others on the way they're progressing through regulation in recent times. Legislatively, I think there is broad concern about 25. I think that's both on the Hill and within our membership. Um, so it's our job to bridge the gap there, right? Get our members up to talk to members of Congress and see how we can come to some sort of logical conclusion. I do think those kind of work both hand in hand, political uncertainty as well as regulatory uncertainty leads to market uncertainty. So that's just kind of where we are. And it seems to be at this juncture, a standstill. 
When it comes to the Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed in 2022, but of course still has lingering impacts into this year, um, the provisions relating to uh, green energy investment. Do you see uh, the IRA's relationship with public infrastructure impacting municipal or corporate bond markets this year? Um, Or is this something that is under the radar, not considered a really top priority um, in the industry? That piece of legislation was somewhat frustrating. There are two PAB provisions in there. The carbon cap uh, usage for carbon capture um, was a pretty big one, as well as as broadband uh, use for broadband expansion. To be frank, they've gone under the radar to a certain extent. I think the way that the legislation was rolled out, there's been very little guidance, and it almost just felt like a, a throwaway piece of legislation at the time because. It started as the Build Build Back Better bill, if we, sorry, that's a tough one to say, the the Build Back Better bill, um, and it was whittled down and whittled down from two point something trillion dollars to, what, what, one point something. So, I mean, it just, it it flew under the radar, I think, because people were so frustrated. It was a missed opportunity from our perspective because that was a good vehicle for a plethora of other pieces of financing legislation that were just kind of tossed to the side. So to answer your question, I just think, up until this point, it's been underutilized, if not ignored by the industry, to a broad extent, not as a whole. But 2024 perhaps could be a different story, but I've not seen anything come from uh, agencies that provide guidance, et cetera, that could really change the trajectory of this juncture. So you gave uh, your own kind of hunch about how the congressional elections will, will kind of turn out in November, and then the White House is up for grabs. I would say it's an understatement in the last, um, I don't know, decade that policy has become uh, less of a focus in political coverage, policy specifics. But at least hypothetically, if parties do decide to uh, kind of pursue their platforms, have either Republicans or Democrats uh, expressed any specifics about proposals for bond market regulations or new taxes, anything if they win the White House or take control of Congress? And again, this is just hypothetical because, of course, in gridlock, they might not be able to get it passed. uh, And who knows how much they will uh, focus on it anyway. Sure. It's not been like, uh, you know, President Biden or former President Trump has made a proposal, right? It's been more at the congressional level, which is encouraging. You have Republican leaders, Democratic leaders on Ways and Means in particular, um, that have been supportive of muni financing proposals, whether that be Congressman Kustoff of uh, Memphis, Tennessee area, uh, who wrote legislation to re-up advanced fundings, or former chairman, current ranking member, Neil, on the Democratic side of Ways and Means, that former mayor, longtime proponent of muni finance, and is always very vocal. Uh, on the Senate side, you have Mr. Wyden, as well as a plethora of Republicans who, who talk publicly about fixed income and the need to, to fix uh, advance fundings and maintain the status of tax exemption, et cetera. So while there's not a broad-based uh, platform for fixed income, if you will, um, I think, as you mentioned in the media age here were more focused on broad topics, healthcare, immigration, impeachment. Now, you know, that that's right. a big one, too. Um, to the nitty gritty details, they sometimes, more often than not now, fall to committees, committees ch- committee chairmen, um, and that's where the real work is done. Yeah, the, the, the policy wonks that love to look at the specifics and, and write and read white papers. You got to have nerds doing the work there at the, the, at the, 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 the committee level, basically. And I, I don't take that personally. I, I, I do the same. So uh, I don't mean anything by that, guys. Sure, definitely. 
Um, well, I want to end with um, kind of one big picture question looking toward the future. And, um, you know, I, by, by nature, it's kind of highly speculative. But ChatGPT4 released just over a year ago. It got everyone thinking about how AI is going to drive changes in every industry. Are you hearing anything from members or legislators uh, when it comes to AI? Is it still too early to tell? Because there is this sense, um, I would say, historically, that legislators can be behind the curve with regulating technology, but there is also a new chapter that's kind of anti-big tech. Uh, and I'm just wondering, what do uh, BDA members or policymakers, what are they talking about when it comes to AI and fixed income markets? Congress and fixed income markets have that similar nature, right? They're a little bit slow to adapt to new technology. I think from the, the BDA perspective, this is a topic we have been raising over the past year in roundtables and conferences, and there's really been no set answer. I think folks are still, generally speaking, trying to figure out how or what AI can do to the marketplace, right? They're also fearful, I think, to a certain extent that how far can AI go within the market in the broker-dealer community? Concern, yet optimistic, uh, at the same time, which I know is an oxymoron there, but it's just big picture view, right, uh, from the broker-dealer perspective. As for Congress, don't hold your breath. Hearings, I, I know they always have been, but now they're so easily to access. It's grandstanding, and those members usually don't know, generally speaking, uh, what they're they're talking about. So it's just information gathering, fear, distrust of big tech, I think, is now bipartisan, right? I would not be surprised if they legislated something I would not be surprised if the piece of legislation they created backfired tremendously. It's such a massive idea. I don't know how you could regulate it at this point. I know that's not a great answer, but. Uh, that, that's kind of how I, you know, I get the sense um, a lot of people write about AI right now. Um, it is still at a hypothetical level. There's such a wide range of capabilities, how it will change things. But, you know, that reality sneaks up on us quicker than we think. And I think people realize that when ChatGPT4 came out. There is still a non-trivial amount of automation in market trading, but also regulation, you know, does attach registered representatives to a lot of that behavior. And so I wonder if the default regulations will kind of stay in place until, I don't know, AI is kind of driving 90% of market moves and people are worried or, or, or it might take a, a big kind of AI generated crash uh, in a currency or, or a certain market. And then the pendulum swings the other way and actually the urgency uh, will be right there. I would point folks to the crypto market in Congress. Look at how they're reacting now. It's it's a retrospective review, trying to regulate through that, and the market's completely changed since the crash happened, right? I mean, it's going to be a, a look back, oh, crap, we messed up, how do we fix it, and regulate what it was, not what it is and where it's going. I assume history will be our guide there, and current activities will be our guide there. So they'll, they'll probably be late to the party, and um, who knows what happens from there. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, it'll be an interesting kind of next year or two as um, AI gets more, you know, adopted in, in, in all these industries. Uh, but Brett Bolton, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Great talking with you. That was Brett Bolton, Vice President and Head of Government and Industry Relations with the Bond Dealers of America. I think what's important for fixed income investors is Brett's point that political gridlock this year ahead of November elections makes any new legislation or taxes for the bond market pretty unlikely. Still, there's new legislation passed last year set to take effect this year, and institutions like the BDA will begin working on potential policies for the next Congress. 
The Fed's pre-meeting silent period will begin at the end of next week. A few Fed officials are scheduled to speak in the holiday-shortened week, though there are no appearances from Chair Powell on the calendar. While the Fed is widely expected to leave rates unchanged at its January 31st meeting, Chair Powell's press conference could give early clues about how the Fed will approach its balance sheet management in the coming year. Markets will also be focusing on whether the FOMC is leaning towards a first rate cut in March or extending its rate pause. The data calendar is full of economic data the next two weeks, beginning with December retail sales on January 17th. While fourth quarter GDP growth is almost certainly going to slow from the 4.9% pace in the third quarter, estimates vary for whether the economy still has underlying strength or is on the verge of slowdown. We'll see the advanced fourth quarter GDP release on January 25th. The December PCE report the following day will be the last inflation report before the Fed's January 31st decision. The next Treasury auctions for coupon securities will come the week of January 22nd, with the last auctions for two-year notes, five-year notes, and seven-year notes before the next quarterly refunding announcement on January 31st. As of November 1st, Treasury believed the January 31st refunding announcement would be the last increase in auction sizes for the foreseeable future. That's all for today's episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Will Compernal, macro strategist with FHN Financial. This episode was edited by Bill Stanfield. Don't forget to like and subscribe to Simply Put wherever you get your podcasts. Email simplyput at fhnfinancial.com with any questions, comments, or concerns. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Views expressed herein accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about the data, news, trends, events, etc. discussed herein or any subject securities or issuers. No part of their compensation was, is, or will be, directly or indirectly, related to any specific recommendations or views expressed. FHN Financial, through First Horizon Bank or its affiliates, offers investment products and services. Investment products are not FDIC-insured, have no bank guarantee, and may lose value.